Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing the murder of two underage girls. The details may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Anyone discussed is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Hey, what's up, you guys? Welcome back to season three! Yay! Yay! Oh my god. Three seasons. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it is a ton of work. And I think we have a, we have a guest, do we not? We do have a guest. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Laura. <laughs> Laura is our uh, number three fan. <laughs> after <laughs> Sharon and Cheryl. <laughs> right, I think Laura was one of our first listeners ever. She's been with us since day one. And um, yeah, and I thought it'd be good to have somebody who's into true crime but hasn't really dived deep into Delphi to be able to ask questions that most normal people would have because we don't have them because we're, you know, way into it. So Laura's here for your perspective, listener. So thanks for being here, Laura. Almost in a way, like I'm tired of the 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 speculation i'm tired like i don't want to say i'm tired of delphi because like i want justice for abby and libby but i'm tired of the bullshit that's why that's why i am Mm -hmm. so do you have any like questions straight off the bat laura about delphi abby libby or the suspect richard allen or anything like that before we get started um i guess maybe just the state of Richard Allen's uh, lawyers. That's the last big thing I oh, remember. Oh, yeah, like who's on the case, yeah. who's fighting to be on the case, yeah. etc. Excellent. So I'm glad that you're all caught up to that point because that's where I had originally planned to start this one because in our Delphi, in the part seven of the Delphi, remember we started that whole series because of the 136-page <laughs> memorandum in support of of Frank's hearing motion um, back in September. And then there was some movement with different hearings and filings and such. And the last part seven that I did um, was on October 19th, the day of said hearing that we were just talking about, where it turned out to be a non-hearing. The judge came out and said there's been an unexpected turn of events and went on to say that Richard Allen's attorneys both withdrew from the case and that she was going to appoint a new counsel and they kept their hearing schedule for October 31st. So that was really interesting, but almost immediately after that hearing happened, we started hearing rumors about how they didn't actually choose to withdraw. They were saying they were coerced and ambushed and forced to withdraw. So Not everybody so was rumors, but like they they were claiming. That's what they were claiming, and because of the leak, which we'll get into a little later, but because of the leak that happened before this October nineteenth hearing, Andrew Baldwin had hired himself an attorney, uh, David Hennessy, who. He filed an appearance notice just to say that he was going to be in court and he would like to speak to the to the judge on the record um, to represent Andrew Baldwin. And in his filing, he had listed in there that there was a potential 
that they would be disqualified. And he kind of gave arguments as to why they shouldn't be disqualified. So we kind of knew that they were being forced out, but we it, it wasn't part of a hearing or anything like that. So we didn't really know. It was just their their version of what happened in there, right? Okay. I'm just getting the the, the drawings up so that she can see them for the first time. Hmm. Okay. Well. So we um so between the 19th of October and the 31st of October, um Brad Rosie, which was um Richard Allen's one of his attorneys. So Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rosie were his two. Now we're, we call them former attorneys. Um, he filed after after that hearing. Rosie filed his intent to maintain representation of Richard Allen, meaning that he wasn't withdrawing. Now in that in chambers meeting, apparently, according to the judge. And also, according to David Hennessy, um, Andrew Baldwin made a an oral motion to withdraw, and the ju judge accepted that. But Rosie didn't. He stated his intent to file a documentation motion to withdraw. So instead of filing a motion to withdraw, he filed saying that he was going to maintain his rep representation. Um, and... He also filed, get this, he also filed to have the judge recuse herself because he feels that she's biased against the attorneys, number one, and against Rick Allen. So she, they, he filed for her to recuse herself. So there's this thing called the docket. The docket is up to the judge to maintain, and it's just supposed to be a kind of a the administrative side of the court proceedings. It's a list of everything that's been filed and everything that's been done. You can keep things confidential in that docket, but there has to be a form that's filed with it explaining why it has to be confidential. So instead of what the judge did here is she, she didn't rule on any of the things that Rosie filed. She said that because he's no longer um, Rick Allen's attorney. He has nothing to do with the case. She struck it all from the record. She and didn't do it right. She instructed the court clerk to basically delete it from the docket. So there was no without sign of filing anything. Yeah. That's right. Without a hearing, without anything. How is that even? It's, it's not, not legal. <laughs> it's not. It's not. So how is that even legal? It's not. <laughs> no, exactly. So then, I think towards the end of October. Judge Gall uh, appointed two new attorneys, uh, William Labredo and Bob Scremin, um, are his new counsel right now, public um, public defenders. Um, on October 30th, Rosie filed a motion to appear as Rick Allen's pro bono attorney, privately hired attorney without getting paid for it. So basically not a public defender, but he's going to go on and represent uh, Rick Allen pro bono for free to try and, and like kind of obviously like go around the corner so that like, oh, okay. like they can't stop him. That's yeah. right. And that is definitely in the United States. That's like one of their, that's one of their rights. Their sixth amendment right is the right to the council of choice. Um, so like that state appointed can state fire pro bono. 
Um, he's just doing his job. Oh, uh, so they can't fire him or right, yeah. right. I mean, according to the law, the the Supreme Court findings in previous cases, that is a Sixth Amendment right for a defendant to be able to have counsel of choice if he's got private attorneys. Now, if they're public, um, if they're appointed public def defenders, it sounds like the judge can say no, but now he offered to go in pro bono. So he and Andrew Baldwin actually ended up doing that same thing. So then on the 31st, you have Andrew Baldwin, Brad Rosie, uh, William Labrado, and Rob Scremen. All four of these attorneys show up to represent Richard Allen, which oh, is wow. hilarious. Apparently, the two new attorneys sat off to the side and Brad and Andrew sat at the defense table with Rick Allen. Um, the judge asked, well, she did her thing first, but then she asked, um, she asked Brad Rosie, okay, what's changed in the past 12 days? What has changed? You withdrew from the case. And he basically stood up and said, I didn't withdraw. Um, we were coerced and forced to withdraw. And they had a little bit of a back and forth. And also the fact that Rick Allen had wrote a letter to the judge saying that I want these two to be my attorneys. This is my wishes. I'm aware of the leak. I'm aware of the issues, but I still want them to be my attorneys. She addressed Rick Allen directly and basically said, um, I cannot in good conscience allow these attorneys to represent you. Um, she, she accused them of being grossly negligent and incompetent. So have we heard anything from the Supreme Court? Um, so we're we're getting there right quickly because the only thing of value that happened at that October 31st hearing, other than her saying, no, you can't represent him, I've appointed these new counsel, is she set a new trial date for October 2024. So 10 month delay because they were supposed to go to trial in January. So it's a 10-month delay so that the new council could get up to speed and decide what defense they're going to use or whatever. Wow. So that, yeah, so all of that happened on October 31st. Immediately after that, though, we've got two different law firms. I'm not going to go through them or, or say the names or anything, but they start filing to the Indiana Supreme Court about issues. And... The lawyers got lawyers. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even, so what they filed first were called a writ of mandamus. And the, the, the lawyers that filed this weren't even hired by the lawyers. These are considered what are known as amicus. So they're friends of the court. So any interested party can file on behalf of any case, um, but they have to do it as a friend of the court. So you're not a direct representation of you. You haven't been hired or appointed as representation. Um, I think I know. So anyways, the writ of mandamus that was filed first um, was just basically asking the Supreme court to force judge Gall to do her job properly when it comes to the court filings that were filed incorrectly under seal and also, the fact that she had ordered the court clerk to completely remove those filings by Brad Rossi from the record. Mm 
even if he wasn't Rick Allen's attorney, he can still file and that still has to remain on the docket, but she can dismiss it, but it has to stay there, right, by law. So they're basically asking her, they're asking the Supreme Court, like, hey, tell her to do her job, is basically what that first writ was. So meantime, Supreme Court gets that. Um, they issue an order saying, okay, you have, okay, Judge Gall, you have until November 16th to respond to this writ. Um, she ends up uh, sending in a request for an extension because she, um, the attorney general who normally represents judges and stuff like this, re, uh, declined to represent her. We don't know why, but they wouldn't represent her. So she had to seek private counsel. <laughs> so anyways, she was given until the 27th to have everything in but then a second writ of mandamus was filed as well and this one is about the way she went about having them removed from the case without a hearing without um not even a motion basically because of the pros because of things that the prosecutor was telling her and because of the leak and rumors basically but she 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 didn't even go on record saying that they were uh, grossly negligent until the 31st. And at that point, that's when they said, okay, well, where's the hearing? How did you find that we were grossly negligent and why weren't we informed so that we could prepare a defense and so that we could respond to this in court before you just made your finding, right? That is not due process. I'd like so to put not, it on record that I do not like her. Right. At all. Right. She doesn't seem like she's very professional for one. Well, as soon as I seen her, I had a vibe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are a lot of people like that that are just completely against Judge Gall. And I think that the decisions that she's made in this case are extremely troubling. But Sus. I also feel like a woman who has earned her way onto the bench um, deserves some level of respect. And I'm. Nah. Well. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I, I have some respect for the woman. What she's done recently is not good. But I'm going to add in here that we found out just recently that on November 2nd, Judge Gall went to the doctor because she wasn't feeling well, and she was actually hospitalized for a few days. Um, and she's still not able to return to work. She's working from home, and she has other judges working on her other caseload. So maybe that has You're something to do with these decisions. I don't know. We have a different judge assigned. All right. Well, I mean, that could However open the door for her. It. Yeah, it could open the door for her to recuse herself for health health reasons. Um, but anyways, before the 16th came and went, that first writ was kind of moot because she went ahead and she released, she ordered some of the documentation released. So we got to see a letter from an inmate from back in, I want to say June, just saying how he witnessed Rick Allen being abused by guards at Westville, stuff like that. Um, and then there was a chain of emails kind of showing emails going back and forth between Nick McClellan, prosecutor, Brad Rosie, and Andrew Baldwin and the judge. They were all um, talking over email, a conversation back and forth about the leak and then about the suicide that happened as, well, I can't even say as a result of the leak. But obviously was to have the transcript of that in-chambers meeting from the 19th be released because 
people, including the judge, were saying, no, you withdrew. You chose to withdraw, so you are no longer representing Rick Allen. But the defense was saying, no, that's not how that meeting went. You forced us to. We had one of two choices. You were either going to fire us and publicly shame us in front of the court and the cameras, which is the only hearing that she ever allowed cameras into, or we could voluntarily withdraw. And so they want those transcripts to be released so that everybody knows what really happened. Um, so that was part of that. And like I said, as part of the first writ, she had released a bunch of stuff and kind of made that whole first, but it didn't because then their response went through and kind of pointed out, okay, she released this, this, and this, but there's still over 30 filings that haven't been released or addressed yet. So it's not moot. Long story short, the first date given was November 16th. She asked for an extension, was given extension to the 27th. So the 27th is when everybody who wants a say can have a say and they have to file it with the Supreme Court by November 27th. Now on November the 27th, there's this huge movement. They're calling it the groundswell where there are a bunch of people planning on protesting on uh, against, I guess, Judge Gall, I guess, um, at the Supreme Court. So that'll be interesting to see what happens there. I like I'm all for that because like it's not against like who she's been in the past as a judge. It's who she's been on this case. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if Richard Allen is innocent or guilty or whatever. It like it has nothing to even do with him yet. It has to do with filings and ethics. procedure and ethics. Yeah. And I feel like as long as there's nobody standing there with a sign that says free Rick Allen, I mean, I'm on board. Yeah. The man has rights. And the only way to get justice for Libby and Abby is to make sure he has a fair trial, which I said it before. That's gone now. There is no possible. doesn't matter what gets done now. All of this shit that's happening right now is ammo for appeals later to have an overturned verdict if he's found guilty and the families will be put through appeal after appeal after appeal this is just a big friggin mess yeah but like there's no way that he did it by himself if it was him no way so like i let's get into that a little bit here just give me one second um just so that you guys know stuff that like pretty much confessed to it like the guy yeah the guy with the sisters and, yeah. yeah okay Okay, so okay, so you guys know about that stuff, but that's fine. But just so you know, in the past couple of days, that transcript has been released. So we now know what happened in that chambers meeting. And 100% without a doubt, Judge Gull is in the wrong. There's no questioning it. She threatened them and gave them that ultimatum. I'm going to publicly shame you or you're going to withdraw. Go talk about it. Let me know. They came back and said, you didn't give us a choice. This is what we have to do. So very interesting. Sounds like a bully to me. No, literally. Mm -hmm. But it's also, even the lawyers that filed these writ of mandamuses, um, they say that these writs are very, very seldom granted. The Supreme Court doesn't always like to get involved in this level of trial. Like it hasn't even gone to trial yet. So I feel like they have to, though. Like, if she can just do whatever she wants and they show that to people, people are going to be pissed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And like I said about that rally that's going on on the 27th, as long as it's not a free Richard Allen rally, then I'm all for it because, yeah, Sixth Amendment rights, like everybody has rights and I, I just think they're not being respected at this point. Okay, so let's get into the leak. So if we remember back and we found out also with some of these filings and emails that back in August... A man named Mitch Westerman, who had worked for Andrew Baldwin as his operations manager in his office, he worked with um, Andrew Baldwin from 2017 to 2019, but when he left to become an ethics commissioner, if you can believe that, he remained good friends with Andrew Baldwin, and he'd go back and visit him once in a while. And back in August, he paid a visit to Andrew Baldwin's office. Andrew was in his office uh, on a phone call. There was nobody else there, but the conference room door was not locked. So Mitch helped himself into that room and there were crime scene photos on the table. Mitch took it upon himself to take pictures of those crime scene photos. Um, and Mitch, sorry, Mitch was a lawyer, somebody who worked at the. He worked at the law firm for a couple of years. The thing is, Mitch never passed the bar, so he was never actually a lawyer. But well, he was, I guess he was creative, and he was a good source, and he was, like, helping them with that memo. So he was like a consultant, right? Like, he did go to law school. He did do all of that. He just did not pass the bar exam. So he wasn't a registered lawyer. I get it, yeah. Right? So he he did... He did contribute to that memo. He he was a consultant on the case, but for whatever reason, he had decided to take these pictures, and that was back in August. Um, and then from there, for whatever reason, he decided, him and this man, Rob Fortson, um, decided that because the public didn't, I guess, see what they saw in that memo, you know, about the Odinists and all that stuff. Then, and then court TV went on and they did those um, diagrams, I guess. And the F that Barbara McDonald said that her law enforcement source gave her years ago, didn't match up to what the crime scene photos showed. That is what I believe to be the reasoning behind them sending those crime scene photos out because they wanted people to see what was actually there and what the sticks like how they were placed like yeah. you can tell they're placed you, like so this is what they say like the tr the twigs look like in yeah. the photo and like we've heard that in the like real photo it's not quite as obvious Okay. So, and the people that, so, okay. Okay, so Rob Forston decided to send these pictures to a man named Mark Robert. Mark Robert was a content creator, but he also had a lot of contacts who were content creators as well. So Mark did end up sending them to people that he thought would be the most likely to put them out on the internet. Um, I'm not going to mention the names of these um, YouTubers, but they've been known to 
be very much into drama and spreading even false information and they have a lot of followers but that's why i believe mark robert decided to send them to those specific people um they happen to have a little bit of a moral compass because they sent them to the murder sheet and said you know basically i think you should call law enforcement on this i don't want anything to do with this but just so you know this is what we've received that's exactly according to the murder sheet what they did on october 5th they got the pictures they called law enforcement and an investigation started about like to find out where the leak came from after they had um questioned robert forston he committed suicide and we don't have a lot of information about it other than his wife did say that he was concerned about it and at first refused to talk to the investigators, but had told his wife that night that, you know what, I'm just going to tell them what I know and be done with it. And then ended up killing himself, which is very sad and very tragic. It is. And it's like, I bet you he was thinking that like, this could be his cancellation. You know what I mean? Like, he probably wasn't just worried about like jail and stuff. I feel like he was also worried about how people were going to perceive him for leaking like underage girl. Like crime scenes. Yeah. And he's also an army vet. Um, and we know that people that have come back from combat, they have PTSD and they have other issues. Sometimes we have no idea what was going on in his day to day. True. And, some someone was able to go into reddit and retrieve his deleted reddit messages for the past year since november of 2022 and i've read them and it's very very clear that robert forston was very involved in this case and he had been receiving inside information for a very long time um so it wasn't just the crime scene photos being sent to him and then he making the decision to send it to mark robert that did this to him I think this is very ongoing with an underlying mental health issue, obviously. Word. But yeah. Um, and then and then to say that like people are like Bob Mata, who I was lucky enough to sit down on a panel with and talk about all this stuff. He he believes that the leak of the crime scene photos has been contained. And what I will say is that you cannot go onto the internet and Google to find these photos but to say that they've been contained and that everybody who got them has deleted them is a gross overstatement that is not true whatsoever they're still being sent around they're still being shared inside quote trusted groups um so unfortunately once it's out there it's kind of hard to you can't get rid of it it's a matter of time before they end up on a website or behind a paywall or something like that. I thought it was bad enough, and I have absolutely no problem bringing up this content creator on YouTube. Um, true crime design, to me, is deplorable for what she did. Um, she made that painting, that color rendition of the crime scene. It's clear to me that she saw the actual crime scene pictures. Um but then and she you posted think that's it. Horrible. Yeah, she posted it on Facebook. She, I mean, and she did a whole thing on like YouTube. 
But so this what, one, what woman part? has been blaming Kelsey and the family for years too, Brie. Okay. So this, it's not just because of this. It's just okay. one more thing that she's done that's been like so disrespectful to the family. So disrespectful. Yeah. And there was a conversation the other night too that um, Becky had told a friend that the thing that hurts her the most about these crime scene photos being out there is how how self-conscious Libby always was about her body and knowing how she was found um, that people could be seeing her like that it breaks her heart and infuriates her and I, I mean I feel that I understand that you don't you like could you imagine well, I, I, Abby I, was found with Libby's clothes on her right yeah yeah that's right. Which and Libby was completely naked. It was kind of like a mixture. Pardon me? The clothes on Abby, like there was like one thing of her, her own or two pairs of pants or something like that tried to be put on her. Like there was some kind of other clothing article on her that was hers. So raw something. So we see on the bridge video on the snap chat photo that Libby took earlier before they were abducted we see Abby with her gray sweater on and a pink shirt and skinny jeans and her black and white chucks right that's how we remember Abby we never saw a picture of Libby that day what she was wearing before but now we know what she was wearing before but Abby was found with her own pink shirt on two bras Libby's jeans not sure if she was wearing her own socks or if she was missing a sock or if she was wearing three socks, but we know there's a sock missing from the crime scene. And she was wearing her own shoes, like the Chuck shoes. Libby was found completely naked. And the perpetrator also took the time to put Libby's sweatshirt on Abby too, on top of her pink shirt. So bizarre. And if you see the pictures and even the the painting whatever you can see how dirty libby's jeans are is stark contrast to how clean abby's shoes are so abby wasn't abby didn't go through the same mud or or however the mud got on those jeans that libby did when libby was wearing those jeans if that makes any sense um speculation obviously the mud could have got there at any point anyway but mm -hmm. and i did again i was on a different panel and i was able to it was kind of neat to actually talk to a profiler because i i was wondering like if they were indeed found like that um so people were saying why we're asking why would he um redress abby and not libby and they were saying well maybe it was a sign of remorse and he ran out of time, blah, 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 whatever. That doesn't make any sense because Abby was already covered with her own shirt. So why wouldn't he have even just laid Libby's sweater over top of her to save her a little bit of dignity or something? Like there's, there's something there. And that was to me confirmed by the profile that I was profiler that I was speaking to a couple of days ago um, about it, that it's pretty clear that it the way they were left there was to intentionally humiliate Libby. 
Whereas if you look at Rick Allen as the suspect, if it was him, could that have something to do with his daughter um, being very similar looking to Libby or something? You know, speculation, but it was just one of those conversations that happened that kind of made a little bit of sense. But wasn't there also about like one of their ex-boyfriend's dads being in Onism? So Abby was dating um, Brad Holder's son at the time. And Brad Holder's dad, or sorry, Brad Holder was an Odinist until right around this time. And the reason he's, he's no longer an Odinist is because, according to another person named in that memo, uh, Patrick Westfall, they had a falling out at Patrick Westfall's house because Brad Holder was going to church on Sundays with his family and then coming and practicing Odinism with the group. And so Patrick Westfall basically told him, you can't do both. You have to pick one. This isn't a game. And he said, well, I'm going to pick my family. So Plot twist. He made the scene look Odinism-y to frame them for cutting him out of the brotherhood. Allegedly, speculation not confirmed, but I personally still lean towards the whole weird, like, how she has the clothes on and she dated this weird dude's son and uh, part of Odinism and Odinists in the fucking prison and the Odinism everywhere. I was going to say, there's just so many ways to Odinism <laughs> that it's just kind of crazy to not speculate, speculate on yeah. it, I guess. And another part of that, um, part seven, that I'm not sure if everybody remembers, but when Nick McClellan filed his response, part of that was affidavits from the prison guards. And they they did acknowledge that they were wearing those patches. And then wore they were allowed to. They, were, they wore them. And it's crazy to me that they started wearing them shortly after Rick Allen arrived at the prison. And they only stopped wearing them when they were instructed to do so after the memo came out. And then also, wasn't it like they were clearing the room so they could hear every word that Rick Allen was saying to his... Yeah, and recording them and making sure they sat in a certain way so that they could read, lip read, self-read. I mean, that's the story, right? That's what that's the... That's what they filed. The defense, right? Filed. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Which is a little so. hard to ignore, I guess. Yeah, because they can't file falsehoods yeah and they have no reason to lie about a camera being pointed at the room that they're talking in to their person that they are yeah appointed to a big problem that i have with people um because there's there's one side or the other there's nobody like i think i'm the only person that i ever known in this case to be straight down the middle um I'm trying to be unbiased, but nobody can see things from both sides, okay? So if you're for the prosecution and you think Rick Allen is the guy, then every word of that memorandum was made up bullshit, and they will not listen to reason. You know, these men, these attorneys, Brad Rosie and Andrew Baldwin, they had successful practices. They've been practicing law for years. They know what they're doing. They're very successful men. They are not going to come in and make up all of this shit 
to throw it at a jury and hope for the best. No, they took every single bit of their information from the discovery that they received from Nick McClelland and law enforcement. It was all in the paperwork. It was all right there. But that was their perception of the evidence that they saw. And that's what the people on the defense side of things don't understand. They could have perceived things differently than what it actually is. The truth is probably somewhere right down the middle. Just I like, think that a lot of people think that way. And a lot of what people do is speculation. I think you're a little deeper into it. You're with the, in a political sense, the the far lefters and the far righters. Like, you're kind of with the extremists. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that are kind of down the middle and sitting back and saying, well, I want to wait to hear. Or what if this? Or what if that? Like, I remember thinking to myself, well, like, Rick Allen... I'm not sure if he's guilty, but this other stuff makes sense. But what if he was trying to become part of the Brotherhood? Like initiation yeah, or something. Yeah, because I look at him and I'm like, okay, you kind of look like Brad Holder. You look like all of those dudes. You fit the The Brotherhood. The stereotype. Yeah. The stereotype. For so sure. And, and you look at Rick Allen, too. He has no history. There was like a domestic call, um, I think, once or twice to his house, but... It was nothing serious. He's never had any charges. He's had a speeding ticket and a no seatbelt ticket. He doesn't have a history of violence or any kind of, um, you know, bad behavior. There's nothing, there's nothing leading up to this as far as, you know, his, his documented history goes, I guess. But. Um, I just don't think it was one person. Like it, it just couldn't have been. Not that far, not that like amount of work, like not that quickly. He's like he wasn't. That it wasn't really that quick. quick. It was about an hour and a half. That's quick. As mm-hmm. somebody who has to go outside and like clean my yard and stuff, that's that's quick. Two bodies and doing all of that—that's that's quick. Killing like the, two the people, defense really the blood hit- being different places, like that's fucking quick. The defense really like explained kind of one man can't you know they did really yeah. good at explaining okay this one person did I all agree. of this mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense yeah it doesn't. And, and that's where the brotherhood initiation thing does, does kind of make sense with, it, yeah. with maybe there was multiple i agree okay. and then if you take into consideration the allegations that the defense was making against tony liggett about the eyewitness accounts and how they differed from what was actually told to him um, that's why that's why trial is so important that we need to get to trial. But then if also um, the crime scene photos when it comes to Elvis Fields. So he he made those confessions to his sister and and also made a statement to law enforcement about spit. Um, but there was no spit. There is no there is no DNA that they can use, apparently. Um, so no spit. But he also said. And the defense kind of backed this up that he had placed sticks on Abby's head um, as to make antlers or horns or whatever it was. Now, the people that have seen the crime scene photos will argue until they are blue in the face saying there's nothing there. There are no sticks there. And I keep saying that the defense would not have put that in a court filing if they didn't perceive something in that photo to be 
intentionally placed sticks or twigs that they could stand in front of a jury and argue their perception of it. You cannot say there's nothing there. There is something there. But at the same time, if prosecution can come forward, and they probably will, and say these are, like, obviously not that obvious just to be antlers, that's a reach. If they can come forward and say that, they obviously have an argument on their side as well. Right. Yeah. You would think that there'd be, like, pictures close up of... That, specifically, unless the investigators overlooked it, like, they kind of fucking overlooked everything on this case. Let's not forget either that Mitch, as far as we know, and as far as I understand it, he didn't have all the time in the world to take these pictures. So he, there are hundreds and hundreds of pictures yeah. of the girls at the scene. Do you know what I mean? These four or five that were released or that were stolen, however you want to put it, that to me is just him quickly taking what he could of what he could as quickly as he could. So people that think that these are all the crime scene photos, no, it's not even close. Like, stop it. Just stop it. It's not even close because there's another, there's another group of people that are saying, well, why are there three pictures of Abby and only one of Libby? Well, because that's what was laid in front of him at the moment. Let's not even talk about those people. Cause that sounds like the dumbest stupid, stupidity. On the wrong uh, side of the tracks. They just don't understand. They just don't get it. (laughs) It's almost like no common sense. Like, are you able to put yourself in that room as somebody that's sneaking, trying to take a few pictures really quickly? Like, you know, you can't even imagine yourself. I don't know. Just to me, it's very stupid. But anyways, it's going, it's out, it's going out there. So the pictures weren't the only part of the quote unquote leak. That's just the latest, I guess, angle of the leak. A few months ago, Uh, Andrew Baldwin was typing an email to his uh, partner in this case, Brad Rosie, um, so B-R-A. Instead, he accidentally sent this email to a man named Brandon Woodhouse, (laughs) B-R-A. So we've all been there, right? Am I right? You start typing an email address and you accidentally hit enter, or you don't accidentally, you just think, I don't know. I've done it before. No, it happened. I've, def- I've definitely done it. No, I've yeah. worked with somebody who did it and it was an insurance thing. And the mm. customer got so freaking mad because yeah. like our laws here mm-hmm. and I had to clean up that mess. So no, I have not done it and I will not. <laughs> You've witnessed it in real life. Witnessed You've witnessed it, it yeah. being done. Right. So, so what the email contained allegedly was what's called an evidence index and it's literally just like a list it's it would be like if you had a thumb drive and you uh, put it in your computer and you see all the folders that are in that thumb drive the titles the kind of code name for them dot right so according to the defense and rumors at the beginning it was just the index and the murder sheet is put out it was just the index no actual evidence was released however mm-hmm. in the past few days we've come to hear from credible sources unfortunately who happened to work in judge gall's office that that discovery was actually leaked And that man named Mark Roberts has it, has copies of it, and has copied it to another YouTuber who has been putting little 
seeds of information out um, to, I guess, bolster the case against Richard Allen. So the one thing that I'm going to talk about, and I don't care, come at me, um, is so in that index was um, a list of Richard Allen's vehicles, Ford Focus, blah, blah, blah. But then there was also one for a motorcycle. Um, early on, we had heard that there were ATV tracks or motor motorcycle tracks nearby. Nobody paid much thought because searchers were also on ATVs and stuff, right? So anyways, we get the um, evidence that was collected during the search of Richard Allen's home. We got that catalog, that list of what was taken. And one of the items taken was a motorcycle cover. So apparently, allegedly, things that other people don't know that I'm sure people are going to be pissed for me bringing up here, but I don't care. I am sick of the rumors. Was that there was some kind of blood mixture or DNA found on that motorcycle cover. That is a mixed sample, but it is contaminated and they cannot draw a full profile from it. So maybe it's meaningless. Maybe it's a mixture of Abby and Libby's blood, but I'm still trying to piece together. Okay, so they, they had motorcycle in the index that was accidentally sent to Brad Woodhouse. Brad Woodhouse, for whatever reason, took the discovery and gave it to Mark Roberts to disperse like he did with the crime scene pictures in October. Um, so where does the motorcycle cover come in? Number one, where is the motorcycle? Number two, if you people out there think that he took a motorcycle to the scene, then that takes the sightings of Rick Allen's car and that CCTV video that made that PCA so believable to these people that makes that irrelevant. So what is it guys? What is it? Did he take a motorcycle there and somehow get blood on the cover or did he drive his friggin' car there that was seen on the video? Like you can't have both. He either went on a motorcycle or he went in his car. Do you know what I'm saying? So Wasn't what's been like eyewitness that's there were three eyewitnesses three eyewitnesses two of which saw a different man than the one the one that saw the muddy bloody guy walking actually apparently never said bloody but muddy and he also wasn't wearing a blue coat he was wearing a tan coat the car that she saw was not a black Ford Focus. It was an old Comet from like the 60s or something, nowhere near that and different color as well. So the defense, unless these witnesses went back and gave a different version of their statement and that's what the prosecution is going on and that's what Tony Leggett was going on when he applied for that search warrant, and the defense just hadn't seen that in the discovery yet or something. But that's what they originally said about the muddy bloody. He wasn't bloody. He was muddy. He was wearing a tan coat, not a blue coat. The one this on the bridge said. All over the place completely. It's a clusterfuck. It is. It's terrible. And then the one lady that saw him on the bridge saw him um, near platform one. But she saw a younger looking fellow with uh, brown curly hair. And in his 20s. That's not Richard Allen. That's not oh, Brad Holder either. You know what I mean? Like, it, 
But what about Elvis? So Elvis, we know because we talked about him. He has very, very low IQ. He reminds me a lot of um, Jesse Miss Kelly. His sister took a, a lie detector test and she passed. But all that tells us is that Elvis indeed told her this story that he was there when these girls died and that he placed antlers on one of the girls' heads and spit on one of them. Does he match the no no he's quite he's quite skinny and he's very unkept kind of um I'll see if I can picture for you guys. pardon he matches it more than rick allen of the sketch maybe but if you look at the differences in the sketching, sketch but if you look at the differences in the sketches and the differences in the eyewitness accounts i don't think you can put any stock in either one of those sketches I don't, especially if you think more than one. Fucking, oh, I know. <laughs> I know. That's kind of why I wanted to to wrap this Delphi series up. With um, a bow. <laughs> with a bow, because now, in my opinion, and it is an informed opinion at this point, quite honestly, the Supreme Court doesn't usually take these things lightly, and they're not they're not pressured to make quick findings and quick rulings. So the fact that this is in the Supreme Court level now, only about the attorneys and about the docket, the chances of this even going to trial in October, unless the former attorneys are reinstated, slim to none. And one thing that I forgot to mention too so why, what is the motive for getting rid of Brad Rosie and Andrew Baldwin? Maybe she was fed up with their, you know, filing that 136 page, not under a seal. Maybe, 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 maybe it was about the leak. Maybe it was about suicide, possibly. Or could it have been, which is known and public now, could it have been that they fully intended to file in the beginning of November to waive speedy trial and go to trial in January. Force the prosecution to take it to trial in January. And it just so happened this all happened before the end of October, before they were able to make that filing. They were waiting because once you waive speedy, you have to have the trial within 70 days. So they were waiting until that 70-day mark would take them to the original trial date in January because they didn't want to go before that. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. So that's uh, that's one of the, and when I say it is a fact now, it's a fact now that they were going to do that. Now, is it a fact that that's why they wanted to get rid of these lawyers? No, that's speculation. But it's an interesting coincidence, to say the least. Oh, do, you, <laughs> like, do you have anything else that's new or any, anything to add? Um, I'm going to say no, because literally waiting for the 27th, when everybody has to have their filings in, obviously, there's going to be a lot of filings tomorrow, but I don't want to go through them all. Um, and then the Supreme Court is going to take their time. They're, yeah, they're just going to take their time. I think they're probably going to, my prediction, okay, my prediction, 
Judge Gall is going to recuse herself due to medical issues. I believe that the Supreme Court is going to reinstate um, Brad Rosey. Andrew Baldwin, I don't know about. He should have had that uh, discovery locked up. He should have been um, less negligent. But I don't think that, from what I understand, that that level of negligence isn't enough to remove an attorney from a case without at least having a hearing. So I think that the Supreme Court is going to put them back on the case. And then if the judge wants to have said hearing, then that's a completely different story. But then you start to get into the realm of, okay, what kind of bias do we have here that it is this important to keep these guys off the case? So yeah, I think Judge Gull is going to see it through, but I also think she's going to recuse herself. And I predict that minimum Brad Rosie will be put back on the case and we will probably see trial in February, March. Not only my prediction, but my hope. Pardon me? Of 2025. Like I hope. I just want to get it done so they can get into the appeal. Um, Because without question, whatever verdict is going to get overturned on appeal, he'll get a new trial and then maybe, maybe we'll see some truth and some justice. I think this whole case has just been a bunch of just lies and misconception and and it's because of the level of secrecy they've tried to Mm -hmm. they've tried to keep everything secret from the public and that is one of the rights they have as american citizens is the right to a fair and public trial so yeah and if you hide it if you tighten it to this point this is what happens there's Mm -hmm. people are going to people are always going to find a way to get the information Mm-hmm. they're just they're going to that's right and if you need to file something confidential confidentially there's a way to do that legally and none of it has been done since day one in this case so hopefully the supreme court fixes what they can but like i said it just needs to get to the end so that we can get to the next phase so that the family can finally have some peace I feel like the law enforcement hasn't like helped at all because like they threw everybody <laughs> down that keg and Klein or whatever the hell his name was. They mm-hmm. let people yeah. like fucking sail down that river for and, sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And to me, I I personally and allegedly speculation, my opinion only, I believe wholeheartedly that Doug Carter is Murder Sheet's source. That he was the one that was giving them the information to go with, like the Kagan Klein um, and the Wabash River search and all that stuff. I I believe it. And my reason for believing that is because I've watched their body language when Doug Carter's brought up. But then also after Rick Allen was arrested and they had the press conference, he was heard and videotaped thanking them for keeping their word. So, educated speculation. Well, that was fun. Thanks, Laura, for joining us. Yeah, no kidding. I think, I think that was a good wrap up of this. And I, what's our intention with the rest of it? Because there's still going to be a lot coming out. But I think that we can use Facebook to bring people up to date with Delphi and YouTube for kind of some of the stuff. If we, yeah, if there's bigger 
stuff we can do another episode but maybe not I, a whole episode but like we can talk about it on a chapter because like a little bit of chit chat is fine but this podcast isn't a deep dive we're not sleuthers well i'm not a sleuther um <laughs> and this is meant to tell you know stories of true crime they're chapters and i'm personally looking forward to next week um is it a surprise? I can't say. I'm not going to say anything. No, you can say it. I said it already. Green River Killer. Oh, yeah. It's going to be good. It's going to mm-hmm. be good. Thank you, Laura, for being here. Do you have any last questions or thoughts or anything about Delphi? Uh, no, I think I'm Do good. Do you think Richard Allen is innocent or guilty? Ooh, that's a trick question <laughs> there. I think that he is a part of something. And whatever that something is, I don't know. It's just You think he knows something. I think, yeah, I think there's too much to... You don't want to put your word out out there. Too too much to rule him out. (laughs) You're like, well, anything is possible. (laughs) I just don't see it being one person. So I I feel like he was a part of something and he might have been there. But there has to be at least one other person. So let's also keep in mind, Laura, that's very very, um, smart of you. But keep in mind, they only have to prove that it was Richard Allen that told them to go down the hill to prove what he's been charged with the felony murder right yeah but if he's charged with it guess what comes next mm. he's not protecting nobody anymore if he's convicted and his appeals fail and blah 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 blah. one day he is going to he's gonna spill the beans yeah <laughs> so, that's it. Like i'm surprised he hasn't very canadian <laughs> i think If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it'll help our show grow. You can find more content on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube at True Crime Story Pod. You can also support the show at Patreon or buy us a coffee, and we will have the links below. If you'd like to suggest a case or write to us, you can contact us through Facebook Messenger or through Gmail at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. And I'm Char. And I'm Laura. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.